right, good morning. I want to do a little review here, because we've had a couple of weeks, and knowing what we've covered so far is going to be important for this morning. How many of you remember back two weeks ago to Hosea chapter 1? Anybody remember that? Okay, in Hosea chapter 1, Hosea is given a command by God. What is the command Hosea is given? A harlot. And he ends up going and marrying who? Gomer. And Gomer was faithful until she got married. Yes. Okay, you guys are awake. Good. No, she was unfaithful. That's the command that Hosea was given. Go marry an unfaithful woman. And he went out and found a woman named Gomer. He marries her. They have how many kids? Three. Oh, this is the bonus question. Who remembers the names of the three kids? One person. <laughs> Someone said Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. <laughs> Okay, so no. Um, so some people said it. Jezreel. Jezreel was a reference back to the Valley of Jezreel when Jehu killed the king of the north and the king of the south. And for that, God promised to wipe out his lineage. Then there is another one, Lo-Ami. What does Lo-Ami mean? Not my, you guys know Hebrew? That's, that's incredible. Lo-Ami. I'm sorry? I didn't teach you Hebrew. <laughs> Lo ami, it means not my people. This is a reversal of what God told them in Exodus. You will be my people. Now he says you're not my people. And the last one, last child's name was? Lo Ruhama. No compassion. No mercy. And that's how he kind of finishes that section by explaining that the northern kingdom of Israel, his main audience, is not going to receive compassion. They are no longer his people. And you might think at this point, in this metaphor that he's using, Hosea's marriage to Gomer and their kids is a metaphor for Yahweh's relationship with Israel. You might think at this point, this marriage is over. God is done with these people. But then Hosea does what he usually does, and he reverses the narrative really quick. Verse 10 of chapter 1, he changes it. And now he goes back to the Abrahamic covenant and says, God's going to fulfill exactly what he promised Israel. End of verse 10, he says, you are not my people. It will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. Verse 11 the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together. The divided kingdom will no longer be divided. It will be one nation again. They will have one king. That is the fulfillment of what covenant? Davidic. Yes, it's the Davidic covenant. It's what was promised to David, that one of your descendants would sit on the throne for eternity, would sit on your throne for eternity. You would have an eternal kingdom. That gets us into chapter 2. Chapter 2 starts with, Say to your brothers, Ami, and to your sisters, Ruhama. And this is continuing the idea of God is going to have compassion and mercy on them. It's actually connected back to verse 1. But it provides, I'm sorry, not verse 1, chapter 1. But it also provides a great introduction to chapter 2. And in chapter 2, God's going to continue this narrative of the marriage between Hosea and Gomer. And he's going to bring indictments against the northern kingdom. 
And those indictments, he says, contend with your mother, contend. Remember, that's that legal terminology he uses. And he brings indictments against them. And the picture is of Gomer going off and chasing other lovers. And she started believing that her other lovers, not Hosea, were providing to her the food and the clothing and the necessities that she needs. And she was getting all of her provision from these other lovers. And that was a picture of the northern kingdom running off to other gods. And we discussed one of those gods. What was that god's name? Baal. Or if you want to be Hebrew, Baal. And Baal had some titles. Do you remember his titles? Something close? Lord of the... Yeah, the Lord of the storm. He controlled the weather. He controlled agriculture. So he was a god of fertility. And if you wanted to have good crops in an agrarian society, you had to go appease Baal. And that's what Israel was doing. They were using the feasts and the Sabbath days, uh, verse 11 of chapter 2, they were using those feasts and Sabbath days that God, that Yahweh had given them to worship him, and they were using those to worship this false god named Baal. And in verse 13, he says, I will punish her for the days of Baal. God is going to bring judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel. At the end of that verse, he says, for she forgot me. And now she's going to face punishment. And once again, you're thinking, man, this marriage is over. He's done with these people. And Hosea does it again. Verse 14 switches the whole narrative again. And now it's no longer punishment. Now it's, I will allure her. I will seduce her. I will persuade her back. I'm going to speak kindly to her. Verse 19, he says, I will betroth you. He says it twice in that one verse. I will betroth you. I will betroth you. I will betroth you forever. Betroth is a term that you would use for a young woman who's never been married. He says it again in verse 20. I will betroth you. He promises he's going to make a covenant with the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the creeping things of the ground. He's going to abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land and he'll make them lie down in safety. Has that promise come true yet? Has he abolished war from the land? This is his compassion. Verses 21 through 23, he shows compassion on her. He ends verse 23, and I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. He ends the chapter with compassion, the mercy and the grace of God. And that brings us into chapter 3. We're going to cover all of chapter 3 today. I know that seems like a lot. It's only five verses. But that's good because that gives us a chance to actually go a little bit deeper than hitting the verse and running. Okay. So let's look at the first verse. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. This brings us to our first point on the outline. If you don't have an outline, there's handouts in the back. First point, Yahweh's tenacious love. This chapter is all about love. If you look at verse 1, I'm going to read it one more time, but I'm going to give it a little emphasis here. Then the Lord said to me, go again. Love a woman 
who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. What do you think he's focusing on? Love. He says it four times in one verse. And just like in chapter 1, we have Yahweh again speaking to Hosea. In chapter 1, Hosea relayed this by saying, The word of the Lord came to Hosea. Verse 2, when the Lord first spoke to Hosea. So he's, he's describing this in the third person. But in Hosea chapter 3, he changes it. He says, And the Lord and Yahweh spoke to me. This is a conversation he's having with Yahweh. Yahweh is speaking directly to him. And just like in chapter 1, once again, Yahweh has a command for Hosea. And once again, it's a command that, well, it's kind of hard to swallow. Look what he says. Verse 1, Go again, love a woman. Go again and love a woman. And just like in chapter 1, we have already hit our first interpretive challenge. This is already a big dispute. Who's this woman? He's being commanded to go love some woman. And there are people who say, this is not Gomer. This is some other woman. And they do that based off the Hebrew word used here. The Hebrew word used is the Hebrew word isha. It just means woman or wife. It's the same word that was used for Eve in Genesis 2. He just put an article on it, so it was the woman. Same word. But it can be used as woman or wife, and context will determine that. So some people say if he was intending to speak of Gomer, he would have used the name Gomer. He would have said, go again and love Gomer. That's their argument. Anyone have a problem with that? What's the problem if that's another woman? What's the problem with that? Yeah, the whole point here of the metaphor is Gomer is Israel. And, and Jose is playing the part of God. If this is another woman, God is going after another nation. And he's abandoning Israel. Okay. Well, then some say, well, you know, he must have had a divorce. Because if, if this is another woman, and God is telling Hosea to go to this other woman and love her, well, Hosea is married. So either God is telling him to commit adultery, or God is telling him to get a divorce. Yes? Yeah. yeah. So I don't think anybody would say that God is telling him, hey, go get an go commit adultery, but I think there are some who would be willing to say that God is saying, you need to get a divorce. In, in their mind, God is done with Israel. But you look at the ending of chapter 1, I will say to you, you are my people. Chapter 2, I will betroth you forever. You will be my people. I will make a covenant with you. Where in the text do you get the idea that this is another woman? The only logical way to view this is to view this as being Gomer. 
And there's a word here that really gives it away. What's the big word that gives it away that this is Gomer? Okay, we haven't, that, that is true, I get where you're going with that. We haven't gotten to the adulterous part. Go again and love a woman. What's the big word there that says this is Gomer? Again. And in the Hebrew, it's actually at the front end of the phrase. It's emphatic. Again, go love a woman. Go back to her. Love her. And later in the verse, he actually says, as the Lord loves the sons of Israel. This isn't that superficial kind of love. Yes. It's possible. I, I haven't thought that one through, so I would say it's possible. Um, I think in other parts where there's, we're going to see it later, where there is an intentional effort to really put her on a low level. So I'm not going to reject it, no, but good. So God tells him, go back, love your wife. And it's not just go back and love your wife. We're going to find out later that he tells Hosea what she's doing. And you already know what she's doing because she was described in chapter 1 as being a harlot, as being unfaithful. In a day and age where divorce is ubiquitous, anybody can get a divorce. In the world, 50% of marriages end in divorce. And you say, well, that's okay because in the church, it's not like that. No, the numbers are the same inside the church too, the visible church. Here you have God telling this faithful man, go back to your wife. And why is this a hard pill to swallow? Because of the very next phrase. Go love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress. I have a real problem with the NASB here. Um, a very big problem with the NASB. Anyone reading a, 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 a translation other than the NASB? What do you have? Love by a lover. What, what translation do you have? King James. Another man. What do you have? Okay, what version are you guys reading? ESV. Okay. They translate this, who is loved by her husband. I translated this, and I went back to check myself with the NASB, and I was like, man, I got it way wrong. I was completely off. And I thought, well, let me look at the word. The word he uses here is a word that means friend, darling, favorite, or lover. It's never used as husband. Ever. It is always referring to a friend, a darling, or a lover. And so I said, well, okay, maybe there's something I'm missing here. So I went to the ESV, another man. I'll say it, guys, on this one, the ESV is better than the NASB, okay? On this one, HCSB, another man. Even the NIV got it right, another man. 
And if that wasn't bad enough, the New Living Translation got it right. Another man. The NASB is the only one that I can find that translates this as a husband, her husband. Her is not here. There's no possessive here. It's just not in the text. It's, if you translate this woodenly, she is loved by another man and is committing adultery. And the she is loved by is a participle that, that modifies woman. It's explaining what she is doing. She is being loved by another man and she is in the process of committing adultery. She's engaging in ongoing, continuous adultery. That also is a participle which shows this ongoing action. So put, your play, put yourself in Hosea's shoes. God comes to you. Your wife is out committing adultery. God comes to you and says, um, you need to go back to your wife and you need to love her. And right now, she's got a friend, she's got a lover, and she is and continues to be engaging in adultery. But you are to go love her the way I love her, the way I love the children of Israel. For a lot of people, that's a really hard pill to swallow. Especially in Hosea's day, when divorce for this would have been easy, in our day, everybody would tell you, just be done with it, be, it's over, just be, get rid of it. Yet God's not happy with just being done with the marriage. And no, Hosea's not trying to teach on marriage, that's not his point. But I think it's a good illustration of what he said in Malachi 2. Marriage is a covenant. And God... Malachi 3, God hates divorce. He hates it when we break that covenant. And that's what Hosea is hearing. And Hosea may be looking at this going, you told me to marry her, and now she's doing this. How many other prophets were told to do something, and they had a rebuttal? Jonah, you notice Hosea didn't even get on a ship and flee to Tarshish? He didn't pull a Moses and say, well, Lord, here's a reason why I can't do what you're telling me to do. All my friends will laugh at me. They'll mock me. I'll be the laughing stock of the whole city. Nobody will hang out with me anymore. I'll completely ruin my reputation. Not even an argument. Not even a hesitation on his part. There's no indication he had any vocal Rejection of this. God tells him, go back to your wife. Go love her again. Next part of that, he says, like Yahweh loves the children of Israel. Here he's reminding us the metaphor of Hosea and Gomer is intended to teach us about Yahweh's relationship with the sons of Israel, with the northern tribes of Israel. That's what it's teaching. He is to go back to his wife who is being unfaithful to him, who is in the act of 
committing adultery, who has been continuously committing adultery, he is to go back to her because Yahweh loves the children of Israel. Now, in the NASB, it says, though they, the Hebrew text here is interesting because it kind of takes that though they or and they, and it kind of isolates it. And it's almost as if everything stops. He turns out all the lights and he shines this big, bright light right there. So if you read it with some emphasis, Yahweh loves the sons of Israel and they are turning to other gods and loving raisin cakes. Almost to give you that shock factor. He's loving them in the midst of the reality that they are turning to other gods. He is remaining faithful to them. And that ending part there, they love raisin cakes, um, has given some people some confusion, mainly because the term raisin cakes is only used three or four times in the Old Testament. And it's nothing complicated. It's just a cake made out of raisins. It's dried grapes mashed together. It's a cake. That's it. It's nothing complicated. But usually when it's referred to, 2 Samuel uh, 6.19, 1 Chronicles 16.3, Song of Solomon 2.5, it's just a food that's given to someone to nourish them. Only here in Hosea is it used in a cultic sense or connected in some way to idolatry. Um, can you guys think of any other time that cakes are used in worship of a false god? There, is a, there are two other passages in Scripture where cakes, not necessarily raisin cakes, but cakes in general are used to worship a false god. Bible knowledge test. <laughs> no? Can someone go, I need a volunteer. Someone read Jeremiah 7, verse 18. Who would like to do that? Okay. Okay. Um, 7, 8, 18. And Joy, would you do Jeremiah 44, 17 through 19? This is talking about the sons of Israel, and they are worshiping a false god, and they are going to um, use food to do it. Let me know when you're there. Yes, sir. They bake cakes for the Queen of Heaven. Jeremiah forty four.
Thank you. Do you hear that? The parallel between that and what they've been doing with Baal is amazing. They were baking cakes for the queen of heaven because she was a fertility goddess. And they thought all of their provision was coming from her. And that's the idea that's being kind of expressed here with raisin cakes. They love raisin cakes. They love to engage in this form of worship. They are continually engaging in idolatry and running away from Yahweh. And yet Yahweh loves them anyway. The promises that Yahweh made to them, he will fulfill. His covenants that he made, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, are still good. And that should be good news to you. Because if the promises Yahweh made to Israel are no longer good on the basis of their disobedience, what does that tell you about the promises he made to you? It's the same God who underwrites both of them. So if Israel can't trust the promises and they can lose their promises because of disobedience, so can you. Yahweh's love is tenacious. It holds on. It doesn't let go. And you see this in the New Testament. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Right? Nobody. He has a tenacious love. Second point on your outline is Yahweh's redeeming love. Yahweh's redeeming love. Hosea gets this command, go back to your wife, go love her again. And like a good prophet, like a good man of God, he is faithful and he is obedient and he goes to find his wife. And verse 2 says, he went, he found her, and he loved her. Is that what verse 2 says? Verse 2, so I bought her. For myself, for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Weren't expecting that, were you? That's a little shocking. And you may say, well, that's just figurative language. It doesn't actually mean he bought her. No, the term he uses here is actually for purchase or rent. It was used in Deuteronomy 2.6 for buying food and water. He bought her. And why did he buy her? For myself. This leads many to believe that she was now a slave. She was engaging in adultery. She was prostituting herself as a slave. And in order for him to have his wife living with him, not even talking about the marriage bed, just living with him, he had to go purchase her out of slavery. Um, this isn't unusual Leviticus 25, 47 through 55, a man could sell himself or herself into slavery to pay off a debt. And a family member could come and redeem that individual by buying them back. So if you were a slave, let's say I sold myself into slavery, one of my family members could come and purchase me back and get me out of slavery. And that's what Hosea does here. He goes and he buys his wife. And again, you put yourself in Hosea's shoes or sandals, whatever he was wearing. This is a hard thing to swallow. He married this woman. She willfully married him 
And now he has to go pay somebody for the privilege of having his wife around? And from Hosea's perspective, you've got to think that was humiliating. That was embarrassing. I have to pay for my wife who's out committing adultery. And I think the only person who was probably humiliated more than Hosea was maybe Gomer. If she had any shame left. Look at what it says next. I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. 15 shekels of silver. Anybody else think of any other time silver is mentioned for purchasing somebody? Judas. How much did Judas get paid? He got paid 30. From Zechariah. It's the price of a slave. Uh, Exodus uh, 21-32. 30 shekels of silver is the price of a slave. Joseph was sold into slavery. Anybody remember how much he got? He, he went for? How much did his brothers get for Joseph? See, Bible trivia. This is. It was less. 20 shekels. She, he didn't even get paid the full price for a slave. And yet Gomer here gets half the price of a slave. 15 shekels. And he said, well, that's not all. That's not all Jose paid for. There was that homer and a half of barley. Well, what is barley? Barley is a kind of grain. It's similar to wheat. But it's, it was likely less expensive. We know it was less expensive because of 2 Kings 7, 1, 7, 2 Kings 7, 16, and 18. All of them seem to indicate that barley was much less expensive. It was the cheap form of wheat. And in 1 Kings 4, barley was used to feed horses and animals. He paid a homer and a half of horse feed. Let's say it another way. He paid half the price of a slave and a couple of bags of dog food for his wife. That would be a modern equivalent. It's not exactly saying a whole lot of nice things about her, is it? The people that were selling her didn't have a high view of her. What's the point? Hosea didn't owe this debt. There was no reason he should have had to pay this debt. The only reason he was paying it is because of the sinful behavior of his wife. He didn't owe it. He could have just turned around and said, I'm not going to pay that. It's not my debt. You got yourself in there, you get yourself out. Or you can wait for the year of Jubilee. He could have said that. But he didn't. He did exactly what God told him to do. He redeemed her. He paid a debt that he didn't owe because she owed a debt she couldn't pay. 
do I need to make the connection here? What do you guys think about that? Make the connection for me. Salvation. If you connect this back to Hosea, the picture, the metaphor, Hosea represents Yahweh, Israel is represented by Gomer, Israel will be redeemed, bought back, purchased by Yahweh. It's a beautiful picture. Yahweh's redeeming love. Romans 6 says, you and I were slaves to sin. Slaves. Matthew 20, 28, Jesus said, I came to redeem, to buy back. 1 Timothy 2, 6, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Revelation 5, I want to read that one. Revelation 5, verse 9. These are the people who are in heaven. Listen to what they, they're singing a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Just like Gomer. Purchased, bought. Paid for with a price. Now the price that was paid for you and I is far more than a few shekels of silver and a bag of food. Now I have to, again, I try to put myself in Hosea's shoes. Once he was done with this, Gomer just watched her faithful husband pay to get her out of slavery. What's the conversation like on the car ride home? What do they say after that? What does she say to him? And I'm not trying to be funny, but it's an, it would be an awkward situation, wouldn't it? We don't know what she said. We do know what he said to her, though. This brings us to our third point. Yahweh's disciplining love. Look at verse 3. Then I, that would be Hosea, said to her, You shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So I will also be toward you. Hosea turns to his wife after he makes this purchase. And he says, Look, you've been bought, you've been purchased. And now you belong to me. And now your life is going to be different. The old life that you were living is no longer going to be a reality for you anymore. Everything must change. Sound familiar? What needs to change? He says, you will dwell with me, literally, you will dwell with me for many days. Many days isn't talking about, you know, a couple months. This is talking about the foreseeable future. You are going to live with me. You're going to stay in my home under my roof. You're not going out anymore. Not only that, 
but you will not play the harlot anymore. The Hebrew here is really descriptive. Literally saying, never whoring. That part of your life is forever behind you. It's a permanent prohibition. It's the same grammatical structure we find in the Ten Commandments. You are never to do this again. Your life is now completely changed. And the ending of that, let me get back to Hosea. You, nor shall you have a man, literally, and not belonging to a man, is talking about any kind of sexual relationship. This includes with other men, and this also includes Hosea. If you look at the end of the verse, so I will also be toward you. That's a drastic change in her life. And it makes me think of chapter 2 when God said, I'm going to put walls around you so you can't do this. I'm going to line your way with thorns. You're not going to be able to go back and do this anymore. You've been redeemed. Life must change. Okay. Why would God want him to do this? Why is Hosea telling his wife, we're not having marital relations, we're not doing that, you're going to live with me, but our life is going to be fundamentally different? Remember, this is a picture he's painting. It's a metaphor. And the metaphor is explained in the very next verse. For, or more literally, because... The sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. What's the image of this? What's the picture he's trying to paint here? He's painting a picture of the new relationship Israel's going to have with Yahweh. Stuff's about to change for them. It's about to be very different. And what are those changes? They're going to go without some things. Just like Gomer was going to go without, what are they going to go without? They're going to go without a couple of things. First, they will go without king. The political structures of Israel, the northern kingdom, they're going to go away. You're not going to have a king anymore. The king you currently have, he's corrupt, he's immoral, he's an idolater. He's going away. This is talking about the fall of the northern kingdom in 722 to Assyria. But not only is your king going to go away, notice you're also going to be without a prince. There's not going to be anyone there to take over as king. You're not going to have a successor in line waiting to become king. The political structures of your nation are going to vanish. Why would God do this? Discipline. We talked about this in chapter 1 and 2. He's disciplining. No more king. No more political structure. They will be without the political structures. They will also be without sacrifice or sacred pillar. Sacrifice, I don't think I need to explain. Sacred pillar. What is a sacred pillar? These were used, only a couple times in, in scriptures, you can find where these were built as a memorial to God to Yahweh. 
but these are also used in false worship. If you turn over to Hosea 10, look at verse 1. Hosea 10.1, Israel is a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he made. The richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. Yahweh gave them prosperity. They built more false altars, thinking that Baal was giving them the prosperity. And then Yahweh gave them more prosperity. And what did they do? They built pillars, memorials to false gods. Worshipping these false gods. He's going to destroy sacrifices. You could take sacrifices in two ways. One, sacrifices to Yahweh himself. They're not going to be able to get down to Jerusalem anymore. And he's also going to cut off the sacrifices to the Baals. That's going to end. And he's going to destroy all the altars and all the pillars. All the remnants of your false worship are going away. What else are they going to be missing? Ephod. Have you guys heard the term ephod before? The high priest. Good. Yeah, this was a garment that the high priest would wear. You see this in Leviticus and Exodus. The high priest is given this ephod. That's a garment that was worn. Um, Judges 17, verse 5, he talks about making an idol and an ephod and setting it up in his house. I forgot the guy's name, though. He makes the idol, he makes an ephod, and he sets it up in his house, and he worships. So this isn't a garment, but this is something connected to false worship and idols that are used in the house. You're going to get rid of the ephods and all the false gods. They're all going away. This is a drastic change of life for Israel, isn't it? It's about to get serious. This is God's discipline, done out of love for the nation of Israel. I want you to turn over to Psalm 89. This will become relevant even more so in a few minutes, but it has this idea of the discipline of God on the children of Israel. Psalm 89, I'm going to start in verse 28. Now you're going to see the pronoun him repeated over and over again. Helm refers to David, King David. Starting in verse 28. Yahweh says, My loving kindness I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. That's speaking of David. That's the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. One of your descendants will sit on your throne for eternity. Verse 30, if his sons, if his descendants forsake my law, which they did, and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips, once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. God's made promises. God says, I'm going to fulfill my promises. But in fulfilling my promises, I'm going to discipline you when you turn away. 
And I point that out only because I don't want you to think that God's discipline here is permanent. This isn't eternal judgment. This is discipline. And that brings us to our final point on your outline. Yahweh's faithful love. Go back to Hosea. I didn't already say that. Hosea 3, verse 5. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Afterward. Literally, after. After what? After this season of many days that we saw in verse 4. After that, and then he gives us another timestamp at the end of the verse, in the last days, in the later days. When are the later days, the last days? Have they arrived yet? They're not here yet. In the context of what he's referring to here, you could say the church age is part of the last days or the last age. But last days is a reference to the day of the Lord. When the Messiah would come back. In the last days, they will return. Who is the sons of Israel will return. They'll return to the land. They'll be sown back into the land. They'll be dispersed in 722. And then sometime in the future, they would return. And what are they going to do? They're going to seek the Lord their God. They will seek after Yahweh. And the word here for seek is actually a word meaning to fear. And it is used in the context of shivering in horror, to be terrified. In Micah 7, verse 17, it refers to approaching with trepidation. That kind of fear would be more like if a king cobra started slithering through the room right now, who would stay in their seat? Everybody would be out of the room. That's that kind of horror, that kind of fear. But in this context, that's not what he's referring to. Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4, Jeremiah 33, verse 9, Ezekiel 16, all use this term with reference to the fear of Yahweh. It's the fear that produces obedience. It's the fear of a young child to their father. You ever hear that as a kid? Just wait until your father gets home. And then you go upstairs and pretend you're asleep thinking it'll save you. Nobody ever did that. I did. <laughs> That's the fear he's talking about. This is the fear of awe, of reverence. They will return to the land and they will revere Yahweh. And then he's got this statement there. They will search after their king, David. David's dead. How are they going to search after him? What is that talking about? Any idea? Messiah. I've got some verses here. This is talking about the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. All right, who wants to do some reading? I need someone to read Jeremiah 30, verse 9. Autumn? Uh, 
Owen, would you do Jeremiah 30, uh, Jeremiah 33, 17, and then 20 and 21? And I need someone to do Ezekiel 34. You guys are making me call on somebody. Ezekiel 34, 23 and 24. And Ezekiel 37. I got two verses in Ezekiel 37. Calvin, um, 22 and 25. And then I'm going to go over to Isaiah 11. And I want you to hear the same language about the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant and David's descendant reigning on the throne. Jeremiah 30, verse 9. I think so. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say 19? 39. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. He will raise up David their king. That would be the Messiah. Uh, Jeremiah 33, 17. David will never lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel. 20 and 21. Thus says the Lord, you can break my covenant today and tonight, so that day and night will not be at no point of time. Then my covenant will also be broken with David my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levitical priest my Did you hear that? If you can get the sun to stop rising and setting, then you can get me to break my covenant with David. Pretty emphatic, isn't it? Um, Ezekiel 34, 23 and 24. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. His servant David will be prince among them. And Ezekiel 37, 22 and 25. So you hear that. Two nations will become one. Verse 24. Verse 24. Yes, sir. My servant David will be king over them, and they will have, all have one shepherd. And they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. All right. Thank you. Notice that. Two kingdoms will become one. They will have one king. It will be his servant David. And he, that servant, that descendant of David, will reign on an eternal throne. It will be David's throne. That was the promise made to David. And like we read, if you can get the sun to stop rising and setting, you can get Yahweh to break that covenant with him. What's life going to be like when that person, the Messiah, reigns? Isaiah 11, verse 1. Then the shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Jesse would be the father of David. 
and a branch from his root. Down to verse 4, Isaiah eleven four. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked and the righteousness. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the young calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy it in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is the promise of the kingdom. Is that happening today? Has that happened ever in our lifetime? Do you think we're going to bring that about? In Matthew 1, we don't need to look at it, but in Matthew 1, um, Matthew wants to prove that Jesus is the king, the promised king that was promised to David. And he does that by giving us a genealogy. And he starts his genealogy with Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And in the rest of the genealogy, verse 6, David the king. Verse 14, he mentions David three times. Throughout the book of Matthew, go home and read it this afternoon. You'll see constant references to Jesus being the son of David. When Jesus returns, Revelation 19. Revelation 19, 11 through 19, everyone, all mill, post mill, everyone agrees this is literal prophecy that will be fulfilled literally in the future. Revelation 19, verse 11, And I saw the heavens open, and behold, a white horse, and he also he who sat on it is also called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, crowns, and he has a name written on them which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, are following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp, two, uh, a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Those verbs, he will rule them, are in the future tense. It's describing what he will do after he gets here. He will rule those nations. Everyone, no matter what eschatological view they hold, everyone views those as being literal prophecy of what will literally happen in the future. But some want to say, no, no, that's going to be spiritual fulfillment. He's not actually going to reign. Because the rest of Revelation is supposed to be interpreted symbolically, and we can just make me whatever we want. I want you to notice something. Verse 11. And I saw. Verse 17. Then I saw. Verse 19. And I saw. Chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw. Chapter 20, verse 4. Then I saw. Chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw. Chapter 21, verse 1, then I saw. You know what those are? Those are 
what big fancy term, macrosyntactical markers. Basically, they just show consecutive chronological action. I saw this, and then I saw this, and then I saw this, and then I saw this. And it connects 19, chapter 19, verse 11, all the way through 21. You know what chapter 20 is? It's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. It's Christ fulfilling the promise we see here in Hosea 3, 5. Chapter 20, verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Exactly as the Old Testament promised, exactly as God had promised Israel, in the book of Hosea, in Ezekiel, in 2 Samuel, in Jeremiah, in Isaiah, God is faithful to his promises. He'll be faithful to the promises he made to Israel, and he'll be faithful to the promises he made to you. That should be encouraging. Okay, questions, comments, concerns? Nothing. Okay. Well, if you do have questions or comments, you can see me afterwards. I'll be happy to talk with you. And if I don't know the answer, we'll find it somehow. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for uh, the love that you have demonstrated to us in Christ, uh, the love that you have demonstrated throughout Scripture for your people. And we thank you that you are faithful to your promises, that your promises are not dependent upon us. They're not dependent upon uh, our obedience, they're dependent upon your faithfulness. And so we thank you so much. We worship you for who you are. And that is our goal this morning is to worship you. And we ask that you would help us to do that. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.